wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening. You can follow Bleeding Daylight and connect to our social media channels by following the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Please share Bleeding Daylight episodes and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine having the world at your feet with the money, position and all the benefits that society considers as marks of success, then losing everything. How do you make your way back from such a dramatic fall? My guest today has lived that experience. We'll meet him in just a moment. Tony Green has known what most people would consider success. He reached incredible heights in the corporate world, earning significant wealth and respect. But it all came crashing down and Tony was left to build his life again. These days, life looks very different. His book, Triumphant Surrender, talks about a very counter-cultural idea of what success means. It's my honour to welcome Tony to Bleeding Daylight today. Thanks for your time. Hey, Rodney, I really appreciate it. I tell you what, just listening to the uh, what you just said, you know, that uh, I couldn't have written it better myself and it just gave me total chill bumps. So I'm very glad to be here today. Thank you. I'm interested in your climb up the corporate ladder and where you found that drive to succeed. Were you a competitive child when you were growing up? Well, you know, I played football. I was quarterback of the football team in high school. We were part of a new high school. We didn't have the best athletes uh, and we lost more than we won. But I tell you what, when I took off running, uh, there there wasn't anybody in the field that could catch me. And I loved that. I loved having a leg up, uh, literally a leg up. You know, one of my, and we'll, we'll get into this, one of my um, my young childhood wounds was uh, feeling unloved and rejected. And Rodney, the way that I coped with that going forward, and this definitely played out in my professional life, was I believed that if I performed well, that people would love me. And it was all, I didn't realize it at the time, but that is why I was so successful because I was driven to perform well. So in my mind, people would love me. I graduated college. I, I crammed four years into five in college, changed my major twice. And I didn't know I was going into sales, but I, that, those were the job offers that I started getting. And I joined Coca-Cola eight days before they changed the formula uh, to New Coke back in 1985. And, you know, within five or six years, all of a sudden I was being entrusted with massive planning, planning that was going to drive a lot of volume to the top line and a lot of profitability to the bottom line. Uh, And I got really good at it. Uh, And finally, they started taking notice in the nation. And when you're really good at sales, you can get paid a lot of money. I went about 12 years where I was making more than 99.6% of the um, world's population. I was up in that percentile. You know, I had the fast BMW, I had the big car, I had the sexy wife, I had the title, vice president with Coca-Cola. I had the respect, I had the list of contacts and network uh, that people coveted. Uh, And it was like, that that was a season where a lot of people would have loved to have been Tony Green. But then like you say, I had another season where nobody wanted to be me. I didn't even want to be myself. Uh, so all of that came crashing down because, you know, in the scheme of things, those were not the things uh, that uh, were true priorities in my life. I, I believe that God, 
I, I, I don't believe that he was going to get my attention as long as I stayed in a highly successful life. Those weren't his plans for me. Uh, his plans were for me to feel the gift of desperation and for me to be humbled uh, and for me to have a loving heart that served other people. And Philippians 2 would say, uh, consider them uh, better than myself uh, instead of me always considering myself the best of the best. And in that time, as you were climbing the corporate ladder, you say that you had this drive to succeed. It was to fill this void so that you felt loved. Was there a time in which and, and we know that it wasn't true love, but in that time, did it feel like love to you? Did that that respect that you were getting, did the money that was pouring in, did that feel at any time like the love that you were seeking? It did for a season. Uh, I was with Coca-Cola for 22 years. And like I said, the last 12 of those, I was vice president. All of the things that drove my success were, were because of that childhood wound of being unloved and rejected. But Rodney, what happened to me is I ended up to such a high level. I'd gotten to a level where for me to get promoted any further, it wasn't going to be about results. It wasn't going to be about performance. Uh, it was going to be about the people that I knew. It was going to be for the politics that I played. And I was a nonconformist. I didn't want to play any politics. And so I hit a spot where my performance no longer mattered to me getting promoted. And I missed three promotions in one year. Uh, and these promotions would have driven me way up higher financially, beyond the 99.6%. And when I missed those three promotions in one year, every single one of them was was like breaking my spirit uh, because I'd been so loyal to Coca-Cola for 22 years. And all of a sudden, they were no longer loving me. You know, that that's the way I read into it is the company that I'd been loyal to for 22 years was no longer loyal to me. Uh, they no longer had any plans for me. You know, so I was thinking last week about, you know, your intelligence quotients and emotional quotients, EQs. Uh, and man, my emotional quotient in that stage uh, was, okay, I'm going to show them. I'm going to, I'm leaving, you know, and it's uh, kind of, you know, some, some addict behavior is I'll show you, I'll hurt me. Uh, and I could have stayed in that job for another 20 years and it would have been the easy thing to do. But it wasn't the God thing to do. Uh, it was not the God thing to do. He, he wanted me to see the other side of life. I want to explore what happened then. But first, let's go back to your childhood. What was it that left that void, that left that ache for love in your childhood? Yeah, there were, there were five of us that grew up uh, in a military household. And it was in small town Arkansas. All five kids, uh, and, and I'm the youngest. And then my oldest sister is 13 years older than me. And so all the kids were either uh, severely abused or severely neglected before they were 10 years old. Each one of us got a little different, uh, you know, in the household. But it was it was one of those things where uh, here come the here come the gaggle of green kids. There were five of us. We got dragged to church every Sunday. Uh, but once we got back in that house, you know, there was there was no discussion of church. There was no discussion of faith. Uh, there was no discussion of anything. We just made it, you know, through that day into the next one. And every single one of those days had abuse and neglect occurring in the household. And so we splintered out, you know, my, my oldest sister, she married and got out of the house as fast as she could. Uh, my brother went into a, a total rebellion stage. He had been valedictorian and the leader of the student council president and and everything. He had been acting in the community theater. He's very musically talented. 
and he went into a rebellion state. Uh, you know, our dad was military and, and my brother was not going to follow him in the military footsteps, uh, which was kind of the plan. I've got a middle sister who uh, dove into a bottle of alcohol before high school was out and stayed there for decades. Uh, and then I've got a sister, the sister just older than me. Uh, man, she grabbed a hold of the foot of the cross and hung on for dear life. Uh, and she's in full-time ministry now and has written, you know, many books. And then for me, I was, I was going to pursue a uh, performance and try to earn the love of others through my performance, whether that was playing high school football, whether that was being the gentleman in the fraternity, the girls could trust, uh, whether that was me getting in sales and, and striving to be the best of the best. That, that was how the childhood wound played out for me. We all spun out differently. Uh, we all kind of have the same wound. To some degree, we can we could dwell in a victim guise, but that you know that's something that each one of us has had to get over and break free of. But we couldn't just hang out and just. Uh, what I needed to end up with was a place where I could share a testimony. I could share a before and after story. Speak to how the before story seems all glitter and glitz, uh, but it's really the ugly after story where nobody would want to be Tony Green where God has really been able to transform me. So we jump ahead. We get to that point where, as you say, you missed out on those promotions within Coca-Cola. So you decided to leave. Where did you go from there? Oh, man, you know, I showed them. I, I could have stayed and stayed safe, but I got a very lucrative offer to go to a really small company. Pretty much, you know, took pride in telling Coke that they were going to have to go it alone without me, <laughs> which I just laugh about now because nobody tells Coca-Cola that. Uh, and I went to a really small company and Rodney, when I figured out that I had an issue, uh, because I had some great ideas and I brought some, brought some innovation to this new small company. Uh, I just needed them. We could make millions of dollars if they would just invest $10,000 in creating a prototype. And the little company, the, the owner of the little company was like, I'm not investing $10,000. And if I would have been with Coca-Cola, they would have, I would have had a, hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars to invest in any innovation uh, that showed promise. And that was when I kind of went, uh Oh, you know, I went from a company that had tremendous resources for the sales force to a company that, that was risk averse. Uh, so I went to them and then I went to another small company after that. I went to Bolthouse Farms, uh, which is a bigger company, kind of medium size, not near as big as Coca-Cola and, and the produce business. And Worked for them for three to four years, and that that was the rocket ride. Uh, I had become a Christian at that point, but I still performance was still part of my life. To me, that was still important to me uh, was to perform well and for people to love me. Uh, but once I left Bolthouse, all of that fell apart. Now that performance is still going on, even though, as you say, you've become a Christian. Was it that you didn't realize that the wounds were there? Did you not realize at that point yet? that you were trying to medicate those wounds with performance? No, I, I didn't realize that. And I remember the day that it all became clear to me. I was uh, in 2011, uh, I was in a therapy session with a Christian counselor. He gave me the key to unlock the door. And, you know, he was able to connect to my childhood that of, of tremendous neglect that, that I had been given. You know, in a dysfunctional family, they would call it the lost child. You know, there's the hero, there's a scapegoat, there's a lost child and a couple of others. Uh, and I was the lost child. And this uh, Christian counselor spoke to me about that. And at that point, I could connect 
what had driven me to make me so successful in corporate America was trying to build that wound, even though I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't aware of it. And then what had made me fall uh, after missing those three promotions with Coca-Cola was that same exact wound. You know, it it had the uh, chance to carry me to incredible heights and it had the chance to have me plummet to very low bottoms. Anybody I talk to now, to me, Rodney, self-awareness is absolutely priceless. Much of that comes through a Bible study and much of that comes through my intimacy with God being tied enough that the Holy Spirit reveals things to me. But I've also got myself surrounded by some uh, excellent accountability partners now, and I give them freedom that if I have blind spots or if I have character defects that I may be missing, they are fully welcome to point those things out to me. We've talked about the absolute highs that you experienced. What about the lows? How far did life crash down for you? Oh, my gosh. My headline that I tell people, you know, because it just grabs attention, you know, I've made millions in corporate America and I've slept on inner city sidewalks. You know, I ended up homeless. Uh, I I self-medicated with alcohol to a tremendous degree, 2006 and 2007 most likely don't remember much about those two years. And I was still operating a business unit for Coca-Cola that was responsible for a billion dollars a year in business. But my drinking picked up because I I was feeling such rejection by the company. Uh, And that wound that had taken me so high was about to be the one that was going to, you know, drop me to my knees and and just break my knees uh, because I was unwilling to bend them. My ego was too big. I was not willing to bend my knees Uh, to God. I really, I didn't become a believer until I was 40. And it took me 20 years to really come to a a point of surrender where I could, I can feel the work of God actively every day in my life. You know, alcohol took me down. It took me down. For 29 years, I drank, I drank for the party. You know, it was uh, two or three nights a week. It was always with people. Um, you know, certainly there were, was a hangover here or hangover there. There was an argument with the spouse here or there, uh, but I wasn't getting arrested. I wasn't getting fired from jobs. Uh, I wasn't broke about 2006 and 2007. Uh, when I started drinking 24-7, everything fell apart. All the money, all those millions that I made, none of it's left. Uh, I remember walking out of a homeless shelter and it was about five degrees out in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was cold. I had a thin coat on and I didn't have any socks on. I had a pair of shoes on uh, and I'm stumbling around out there in five degree weather and I've got to find something to do for three hours before the homeless shelter opens back up. I'm in the concrete jungle and I find myself walking under an overpass, Rodney, and I, I looked up under the, one of my sisters lived homeless for a year and a half uh, down in Texas, and this was 10 years ago. But um, I looked up under that bridge and there were a couple of homeless people snuggled up under that bridge uh, in five degree weather. And Rodney, I had seven dollars left to my name after everything that I'd achieved and everything that I'd earned. I had seven dollars left to my name. I could just it was almost like I could hear the devil screaming in my head, spend that last seven dollars on alcohol and climb up under that bridge. And I got to tell you, I, I stood there for two or three minutes considering it. You know, it was, it was, I thought life was over. I, I thought uh, God wouldn't give me another chance. Uh, I knew that I had blown it with humans. You know, I had, there was so much shame 
uh, that was eating me alive. Not only had I made mistakes, but I was a mistake. And it had to be the Holy Spirit that that had me trudge out from underneath that bridge uh, because I walked over to a burger store uh, that had some breakfast sandwiches and I only had $7 left. And uh, I remember all I got was a cup of coffee. I was going to hang on to those other $6. I didn't go into the convenience store next door. I didn't drink that day at all. But all of a sudden, God started seeding a plan in my mind to enter a, a men's discipleship program who have struggled with addiction. And it's called the Exodus program. Uh, and before I walked out of that, that little burger shop with that cup of coffee, uh, I texted a life coach over at the um, Exodus program. And the next day I had an interview there uh, and I went in uh, and stayed for nine months. Uh, and, and really, um, it was right on the heels of that. In that nine months, I wrote the book. It, it came out in 10 weeks. I didn't have an outline or anything. It had all been fragments that God had revealed to me over the years uh, and different states of my Christian walk. You know, my, most of the early part of my Christian walk, I didn't have a servant's heart at all. I was still balancing that that wealthy life with with my faith. I had to lose everything, Rodney. That's a that's a way I talk about it is, is you know, why did Paul um, shipwreck on Malta? It had to happen. God had a plan for him. He had a calling for Paul's life uh, on the island of Malta. And uh, that had to happen for me. I had to lose everything. Nobody wants to do that. So that's why I'm hoping that they might give the book a read and learn from it. So nobody else has to go through everything I went through. You know, I once had an ego that was the size of Texas, uh, huge. And my heart uh, for the hurting uh, was microscopic. And what everything I've gone through the last, you know, 10 years and five years, and I've lived in a lot of poverty and it doesn't matter to me anymore. Uh, I don't, I don't want any of the material things back because what has happened to Rodney is as my ego has been shattered, uh, my heart for the hurting has grown to be the size of the United States for that. And that alone, it was all worth it. It was all worth it that I had my first sip of alcohol. I don't have any regrets. Uh, could it have happened in an easier way? Most likely. Uh, but I believe uh, with a mouth like mine and, and you know, the way that I write, God wanted me to have a story to tell to inspire other people. I'm wondering at that time when you're at your deepest low and you're looking around thinking, here I am, I, I have no home. The money I had is completely gone. The lifestyle is is gone. Of course, you've worked for one of the biggest companies in the world. We know Coca-Cola is everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there's there's either advertising or refrigerators in, in stores that are filled with Coca-Cola. Right. Did it feel like that was mocking you the whole time? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yep. My biggest struggle has been shame. When, when you've struggled with addiction, when you've uh, when you had so much and now you have very little. Now, and this is without thinking of the kingdom perspective, but from a faith standpoint, uh, there is an enemy of my soul. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, and he, he every single day, he wants to get a stronghold on me and anybody else that's walking in the, in the, in the light. And his biggest weapon against me was shame. Uh, his biggest weapon against me, where my ego had been huge, where I thought I was a world beater, where for so many years, everything I touched turned to gold. All of a sudden, he was just, he had his foot on my throat trying to crush my windpipe. Uh, and he was telling me I was unworthy and I was a loser and I'd ruined everything that nobody loved me. You know, these 
these core beliefs that are talked about. Uh, my core beliefs, you know, when I was successful in corporate America was one set of core beliefs, but man alive, when, when I started um, finding out that, that alcohol, you know, I was using it to self-medicate these wounds uh, and that I couldn't on my own beat it. Addiction is a brutal thing. One day I slept on a sidewalk and, and one day I got up off the sidewalk and it was in the most dangerous part of the inner city of Cincinnati. Uh, and I had survived it. I woke up the next morning. I had not been robbed. I had not been killed. I had not been mugged. And I woke up from it. And something between God and I happened that day because I knew that that was not my calling. I knew for me to be homeless, sleeping on a sidewalk was not my calling, but I knew it was my calling to be able to be compassionate for people who do do that and who have done that. Uh, I've got a ton of proximity compassion because since I've lived homeless, I have a heart for the homeless. Since I've been addicted, I have a heart for the addicted. Since I have been penniless, I have a heart for the penniless. Since I've now lost a job, my first job I ever lost was at the age of 53. All of a sudden, I became really compassionate for people that lose have lost jobs. The devil wanted me to just die in my shame. But if he couldn't take me to hell with him, uh, he certainly was out to kill my testimony uh, for his for God's glory. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, I, I wrote this book and then for two years I was scared to death to, to publish it, you know, because I thought I thought if I published it, I had to be perfect. And I knew that that was not that was not a real realistic expectation. Uh, but in the end, after getting up off that sidewalk and knowing that the devil wanted to uh, render my testimony powerless, man, I went to publish it. I found a publisher and I did it. Uh, and part of the success of the entire story is how transparent I am. I don't hide anything. I didn't beat around the bush on anything. Uh, and actually I read through it before I published it and made sure that I didn't glorify myself at all in it. Uh, you know, so I give, I give all the glory to, to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the, the way the Holy spirit brings the word to life. The devil was out to kill me and, and continuously gain a foothold on me through shame. We sometimes hear this narrative that if we become Christians, we we accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives, then everything is fine. But there was quite a distance between the time that you became a Christian and life started to turn around. Do you think too often we swallow a very false story about what becoming a Christian means? You know, it, it, it's kind of crazy because, you know, when I first joined a church and when I first became a believer, uh, I've got a sister in the faith who's been there a lot of years, and she was she was the one that I went and talked to about what should this life look like, uh, because I wasn't hearing a lot of teaching about it. You know, I spent the first 13 years of my faith walk, I spent in the word, but not in the spirit. Uh, I was out to read the Bible for information and not transformation. I was out to read the Bible so I could uh, memorize. Again, remember, I was a high performer. Um, I wanted people to love me. So I learned as much scripture as I could and spouted it at people so they would know how to live their lives for God when I wasn't living my life for God. There were years and years uh, where um, I, I realized what I wanted was a savior. I wanted the ticket into heaven. But buying off on him being Lord of my life, buying off on on throwing my agenda, you know, to the deepest part of the sea and totally going with God's agenda uh, through the gospel. 
him taking lordship of my life was that took a lot of years for me. That took 18 years or so uh, for me to go through different phases in my, in my faith walk. I'm so grateful that it happened. You know, I'm so grateful that now, I mean, my only hope is in Jesus. My only hope is in Jesus. And, and Rodney, I used to have so much hope set up in myself. I had so much hope set up in, in my high paying job and career. I had so much hope set up in having a, a celebrity sibling. Uh, I had so much hope set up in, you know, having a sexy wife and a big house and a fast car. They, when I look at my God-shaped hole, I go back to, to Pascal and what he said, you know, is there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. Uh, and it can only be made known to us by Jesus Christ, uh, by God through Jesus Christ, uh, was the quote. I finally understood that for me to stop trying to fill my God-shaped hole with other things meant I was finally accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord. That's when everything changed. I can't have regrets. If I had any, uh, it would be that, that I didn't come to that revelation uh, until later in my faith walk. Uh, but, you know, God, hey, he had his timing. I, I tried to commit suicide in 2012, and it wasn't my day. You know, it was not my day. God knows the day and the hour that I will cross over to the other side. And even though I was trying to make it happen early, he wasn't letting it happen early. Uh, and so now, man, I just, I believe my best life's in front of me, whether I live 10 days, 10 months, or 10 years, because it's going to be serving the kingdom of God. It's going to be helping other people. And it sounds like that search for love was all about mastery of you you had this mastery over sport that that you were great on the sporting field, then this mastery of of what it takes to to grow a business. And then you you tried to transfer that across to the Christian life to master that until you realized that the only master had to be Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Working with Coca-Cola, I remember mentioning this to a senior management one day about how big a concept humility is. And he was like, yeah, Tony, but it's not very valued in Coca-Cola. Uh, and he was exactly right. You know, for, for us to accept any blame whatsoever, uh, for us to confess that we were struggling with anything, that, that was not in the realm of corporate America. And so one of the things that has just been such a blessing to me, Rodney, uh, is this concept of humility and this concept of, uh, I thought I had to be a super Christian. Uh, I became a Christian, but I thought I had to be the super Christian. I, I thought I had a sister that was 30 years ahead of me in Bible study and, and walking in the spirit. And my whole thing was, how do I catch up with her? How do I catch up with her? In, in one way, the moment I first believed, I caught up with her in my justification. Uh, and the other thing was, she's 30 years ahead of me with the Holy Spirit and the Bible. It's not God's plan for me to catch up with her. You know, all of us in our sanctification are at, at different spots, I believe. Uh, and so once I got over myself having to be the super Christian, uh, and once I finally started to understand that, that I did have, have God living in me as the Holy Spirit, I felt such relief when him doing most of the work, all I had to do was surrender. Uh, if I would just surrender, if I would believe bigger and surrender deeper, the Holy Spirit would do the work. And that was tremendous relief for me. And that, that's when I started dropping performance. That's when I stopped bragging on myself. Uh, that's when I started getting absolutely transparent and confessing uh, the things that I'd screwed up uh, and not being scared to take the blame for, for things. 
humility changed everything. We've mentioned the book Triumphant Surrender a number of times, and as you say, it is your story of what happened in the the lead up to things crashing down, but then what happened afterwards. For those who are interested in reading it, tell us, what are we going to find in that book? I think the devil is tries to make all of us believe we're alone in our struggles. And right off the bat, I want to assure everybody that they're not alone. They're not alone at all. That, that There are all kinds of people who are struggling. So many of us think we're the only one that could have done what we've done. Uh, yet we find out, you know, when you start opening up and talking to other people and, you know, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, all of a sudden you hear stories, you're like, well, wow, I wasn't that bad, you know, and you start realizing that you're not alone. And I know as long as I gave the devil room to play the shame game on me and keep me isolated and keep me thinking I was alone, he had his claws in me, couldn't get him out. I have to tell the story of the heights that I went to so I can tell the story of the lows that I fell to. And come to the conclusion that, at least for me, the gospel of of Jesus Christ was my only hope. That it took all of that. It took all the lessons I had to learn, some on the way up, but most on the way down, uh, and most in the bottom of of the pit. It took all of those lessons for me to finally come to the agreement with God that my only hope was in Christ. Uh, And so I spend so much of the book. Uh, telling people of, of my my interactions with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Word, and what transformation uh, has taken off. And, and you know, Rodney, it was, there, there's 500 scriptures uh, in 156 pages. Uh, so, uh, and I, I didn't plan it that way. I didn't plan to use a lot of scriptures or little scriptures, but it was just in those 10 weeks of writing, it's what happened. You know, God promises that if his word goes out, uh, it will never return void. And that has been my hope the whole way through. I don't I could care less about royalties. I could care less about name recognition. Uh, All I care about is that there's 500 scriptures uh, that may make it into somebody's uh, mindset uh, that they, you know, there's a saying you you may be the only Bible some people ever, ever read by your testimony. And, and that is that is my top priority as that God's word goes out. So this is certainly not a self-help manual. It actually points people to Jesus. Absolutely. It, it's not self-help. I would have to think that I got this th- thing down big time, you know, and that was one of the reasons I didn't publish it for two years was because I, I was scared I would have to be perfect, you know, and I still make mistakes every day. Uh, they're not They're not the same ones that absolutely threaten my life and give the devil a foothold. Uh, but I make mistakes every day. And I, I talk to the guys that, that are around me that, that have proven, have proven uh, trustworthy to do life with me. So it's not a self-help book, but I'm telling you, man, it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It points to the fact that to, to me, the will of God for my life is to have an intimate relationship with him and to get to know him and to feel his agape love and and reciprocate agape love back to him to put his agenda above my agenda to the degree that I don't even remember that I ever even had an agenda uh, unless it's just part of my testimony that I tell. And I believe the the call on my life, and I absolutely believe it is to love my neighbors as myself, that, you know, I'm called to love other believers. I'm called to love the lost. 
Uh, I'm called to love the least of these, and then I'm called to love my enemies. And all of those were were eye opening to me, you know, that because I never could understand how I love my neighbors myself. And you know, through the years of shame, Rodney, I didn't love myself. So that wasn't a tall order for me to uh, receive that from Jesus to love my neighbor as myself. Uh, but now I get it. Now I understand uh, the the call of, of God on me, uh, the higher calling of Christ. And then two things that I talk about that are just huge, you know, uh, beyond my own. My I have a chapter on hoping upon Jesus alone, uh, but then I have a chapter on identity in Christ. And that is the one that gets as close to self-help as you can, because when you think of uh, self-help books will tell you to speak affirmations over your life, to say, I am significant and and I'm a good person and I can accomplish great things and to stand in front of a mirror and, and tell yourself those things. And, and, you know, that just never worked for me. Uh, but when I buy into my identity in Christ, God tells me at least 300 times in, in the Bible, he tells me, who I am when I believe in Christ uh, and that I am, I am significant and I have been called to bear kingdom fruit and that I am his masterpiece and that I am his prized possession. And all of those things that may seem hard for me to believe when I'm coming out of a season of shame, if I lock into those, that is, it changes everything. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit sees my faith and sees that I believe I am who God says I am and accept my identity in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit has something to work with. Oh my gosh. And, and that's the last thing I was going to say is, is once I can unleash the Holy Spirit uh, power inside me to transform me inside out uh, to such a degree that the fruit of the Spirit is just fully evident in my life, then I have the chance to go help other people. You know, and at that point, you know, there's such a light shining out of me as you talk about that it can absolutely punch holes and kick holes in the darkness and, and the light can bleed through. It is, it, it, it becomes all about the gospel uh, as really my only hope. And, and uh, I write it in such a way that uh, if you're up for receiving it, you, you might hear that it's your only hope too. What has been the response to the book from those who have read it? What are they saying to you? Oh gosh, it's, it's been, it's been crazy. And, and early on, you know, I pushed it a lot. And then I started feeling uncomfortable on myself promoting and my God promoting. And then I just pulled back for a couple of months. The people that have read it, uh, and, and there have been several hundred thousand, and I regularly get people calling me uh, saying how it changed their lives and saying how, as a mature believer, it refocused them as immature believers it gave them a roadmap to following God's will and build an intimate relationship to him, to understanding God's call and loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, to hoping upon Jesus alone and not the God-shaped hole that you've been trying to fill up. Uh, and then to, you know, what your identity in Christ is and then what Holy Spirit transformation is. Whether it's mature believers that I never thought I would hear from and they've read it, uh, or whether it is, um, you know, new believers that they got their highlighters out, you know, like this, this one guy mentioned to me this last Saturday that he'd been to church a week before and his pastor asked him, do you read the Bible for information or do you read the Bible for transformation? Some people have read this book for information. You know, I've been pretty public about, you know, having some dark spots in my life. And so, you know, there, there's some people from my past that I think were just curious about 
how low did Tony go? Most of them that I hear from, uh, they read it for transformation uh, and they're reading it again and they've got their highlighters out. Uh, there, there's guys at Coca-Cola that I barely knew. Uh, I knew of them, uh, but I can't remember ever even having conversations with them. They know that I've been gone for a long time and somehow they heard about the book. I, people have bought it that I never expected would buy it uh, and have told me that that it was just incredible for them, uh, an incredible experience. And so, man, that that's what I prayed. That's what I felt when I was writing it. Um, I, I've been given an outline for a second book, but I don't know that I'll ever write it. When I really feel the Holy Spirit move me uh, is when I'll sit down and get serious about writing anything else. But uh, the response has been great. You know, whether it's people in the recovery community, whether it's people in corporate America, people that I've known from, you know, a past treatment center or something, uh, it's been really good. Tony, if people want to get hold of the book or get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to go? The website that I have is, is triumphantsurrender.com. My email address is on there as well. Uh, one of my cell phone numbers is on there. You can get the book. It's now available. It's available on Amazon. It's available on walmart.com. It's available on target.com. It's available at barnesandnoble.com. And it's available on, on Apple Books uh, for people that want the electronic version of it. There's lots of ways that people can connect with you. And we'll put some links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. But Tony, I want to say thank you for sharing just a glimpse into your story. I'm sure there's so much more that people want to read in the book, Triumphant Surrender. Thank you so much for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Rodney, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, thanks so much for asking great questions and, and forcing me to, to remember you know, why, why I've done what I've done and why I've gone through what I've gone through. Uh, it is. It's all in the end. It's all for the glory of God uh, and for people to find hope where the, where the one true hope resides. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.